Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm, my name is Tin, and I'm doing the uh, second Bible reading this mo- morning. Uh, please come with me, open up your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I will be reading from verse 3 to 10. If anyone teaches four doctrines and does not agree to some instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understanding nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversy and quarrels about words which result in envy, strife, malicious talk, and evil suspicious, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind, who have been robbed of the truth, and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be contented with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many grief. Thank you, Lord, for his words. I do hope uh, you've been finding the book of 1 Timothy helpful. I've been finding, in fact, uh, working through this uh, book, we do cover passages we would not normally cover. And um, in the kindness of God, he uses each week um, different passages to speak to different people in our church of things they need to reflect on. And, of course, today we've got this passage, and I'm sure it's, it's to speak to us and to bring to mind things that we are to reflect on, things that we are to bring in alignment with God. So let's pray that that will happen. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we sit under your word again, we do pray that you align our hearts, our thoughts, and our desires to your will, that our will will be yours, and that we'll see your will done in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are up to the last chapter of 1 Timothy. It's the second last talk in 1 Timothy. And what we find in this chapter is that the Apostle Paul ends his letter with the same concern he started his letter with, and that is to the church. He speaks to the church and says to them, you need to be aware. You need to be vigilant. You need to be on the lookout because there are dangers that you will face as a church. And so the Apostle Paul is a bit like a father telling his child the first time they move out of home, you need to be careful. You need to be warned. There are dangers in this world. Just watch out. But of course, he's, Paul is speaking about the church. Now, perhaps for us to understand and appreciate why Paul was so concerned about the dangers of the church or the dangers that the church faced, in fact, the dangers every generation faces, we have to see, in fact, what happened back then and understand what eventually happened of this church. And do you know what eventually happened with the church in Ephesus? We read of this, 
Timothy's there. Paul wrote a letter, the book of Ephesians, to the Ephesian church. But what happened to this church or these house churches? Well, what we know was that towards the end of the first century, so about 30 to 40 years after Paul wrote this letter, we get a clue from the Apostle John in the book of Revelation when John wrote to the seven churches. And one of those churches was to the Ephesians, to the churches in Ephesus. And do you know what John said? John said this to the church. He said, you have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent. Now I wonder whether that surprises you, whether that's a bit of a shock. You see, this was a church that was so well-resourced. It was a metropolis. It was a church in a big city. And they had the greatest of leaders. They had the Apostle Paul who served, who planted the church, who worked there for about three years. And Paul sent Timothy, his young protege, this great pastor, young minister, timid but gifted. And then later, a few decades on, even the Apostle John served in Ephesus. It was in fact in Ephesus that John wrote the Gospel of John and the letters of 1, 2 and 3 John. And so you think about Ephesus and the churches in Ephesus. They were well resourced. They had two of the apostles. They had great leaders. Well, what, but what came of them? Well, from the letter, the, the, the book of Revelation, we see that they have lost or forsaken their first love. 20, 30, 40 years after this letter was written. No longer was Jesus at the center of their very existence. Now, of course, we know, for various reasons, the church in Ephesus no longer exists today. Once a strong church, once a very strong church, no longer exists today, of course, for various reasons, for, because of wars and invasion. In fact, the site now is an archaeological site, Ephesus, if you've been there in Turkey, it's just ruins. But when you walk through the ruins, you can see how grand that city once was. You've got that great theatre, you've got the harbour, you've got the big library. It used to be big, but it is no more. But the church Paul described in, described in this letter as the, the pillar and buttress of the truth. And so what happened? Well, they were deceived. They've forsaken their first love. And that continues to happen generation after generation with churches. You see, it only takes one degree off from the center. And after a kilometer, I did a bit of maths this past week. After a kilometer, if you're at one degree off, how far off are you from the center? About 17 and a half meters. Just a little bit off, generation after generation, you'll be a way off. And so that's why Paul ends this letter with the same concern for the church that he started this letter with. Watch out. And he makes three points. The first, there will be those, even within the church, who will reject the words of Jesus. They'll like to teach what they like to say. They're the talkers. And they'll be seen because they'll also reject the ways of Jesus. And so their lives will show it. It will be revealed. 
And instead, what do they pursue? The third point, which I'll spend most of this sermon on, is they pursue the wealth of this world. Wealth, money, possessions, stuff becomes their first love. And of course, with money comes trouble. I like how the theologian Don Carson, he puts it, corrupt doctrine leads to corrupt behavior, and that is often bound up with corrupt financial motives. And that's what we see in this passage. And so first, Paul says, watch out for those who reject the words of Jesus. Remember, he's not speaking to the world. He's speaking to the church. Watch out for those who reject the words of Jesus. Look at verses 3 and 4. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. And so you put that simply, you have guys who have big mouths and big heads. Big mouths and big heads. They are the talkers, loving to teach, loving to draw attention, very engaging, and they can suck you in by their rhetoric. In fact, that was what the Greek world was known for. They honoured those who could speak publicly, who were engaged in rhetoric and could engage a crowd. It's why when Paul went to Athens, you know the story in Acts 17, when he went there, he, he saw the Athenians and the th- foreigners in the marketplace not doing anything at all, apart from talking and listening to the latest ideas. And that culture of just listening to these great preachers, speakers, talkers, was making its way into the church. And the only problem was that these guys who loved to speak, they were not teaching what Jesus taught. Not sound doctrine, and whatever they were teaching, it did not lead to godly behavior. They have big mouths and even bigger heads. And that's why Paul says in verse 4, they are conceited. You can know a lot, but that just puffs you up. It makes you so proud and arrogant. I'm not sure if you know anyone like that. Just knows a lot, but yet it's just a big head. But really... Paul says, they understand nothing. In another translation, it puts it less politely. Another translation puts it as, as uh, they are conceited idiots. And so these guys have the gift of the gab, but the gab that only lets out hot air. But what does it look like? What might it look like in our world? Well, often I suspect it's very subtle. Often it is very subtle. False teaching. What does it sound like? Well, it might sound a bit like this. God wants you to be happy, doesn't he? God, of course, wants you to be happy. And so you should be praying for blessing upon yourself, upon your family. Claim the blessings of God. You can claim success and wealth and abundance. I mean, God said so himself, didn't he, in Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, have you heard that before? It might sound right. It comes from Scripture. But it is a little off. In fact, it is false teaching. It's called prosperity gospel. 
And it is false, and many have been deceived and led astray by that type of teaching, that becoming a Christian means you get rich and wealthy and healthy. Not at all. You see, God does not want us to be happy in the way we think about happiness. In God's mind, happiness looks very differently. In fact, God is far more concerned about our godliness than our happiness. And God's plans to prosper. You see, even that passage, you have to understand it in context. That was about the exiles in in Babylon. You can't just pluck out a verse out of the Old Testament and say, that's for us as well. In fact, if we understand that verse rightly, God wants far more than wealth and riches for us. Far more than that. We are selling ourselves short if that is what we're taught. And what God wants centers on his son, Jesus Christ, so that those of us who are in him are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Far more than that. Or have you heard this type of teaching? God is in control, we know that. And if you belong to God then you shouldn't suffer. And the reason why you're sick is because you don't have enough faith. Have you heard that before? You're sick and you suffer because you deserve it. I mean, it sounds a lot like the friends of Job. Have you heard that type of teaching before? It sounds sort of right, but it is in fact false doctrine. I mean, I've heard that before and I've heard it even amongst those who were once part of us. But it is just not true. I mean, how can we claim to believe in a suffering saviour, but then not expect suffering to be a part of the life of discipleship, of following after Jesus and carrying the cross? Or how can we claim to believe in a sovereign God and not believe that he is sovereign even in our suffering? Instead, those of us who do suffer And those in our church, you need to hear. Even in our sufferings, we can trust that God is still sovereign. He knows what he's doing. And he'll bring about his good purposes, even in our suffering. You see how it's different? And so these guys who were sort of infiltrating the church, big mouths, massive heads, watch out for those who reject the words of Jesus. And it will also be seen by how they reject the ways of Jesus. Corrupt doctrine leads to corrupt behavior. I mean, just have a look at the verses uh, five, 4 and 5. Look at the list. He has an unhealthy, or it's also translated here as a sick interest in controversies, in quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind and who have been robbed of the truth. Now what does that look like? Well, these are the guys who just love to fight. Rather than lower the temperature, they want to increase the temperature, raise it. They're in it for the fight, rather than to be the peacemaker, engaging in word battles, engaging in character assassination, slandering, engaging in despising, undermining, and especially the leadership. They love to listen to gossip. I want to hear it. What's happening? I want to hear it. They love to gossip. And notice what Paul says in that verse. 
evil suspicion. Do you know how easy it is to destroy a united community? A family of God that is united, you know how easy it is to destroy that? Just do what Paul says here. Spread rumors, create suspicion, speak maliciously, and it becomes like this cancer that grows and spreads and affects and destroys. They love to take sides. They want you to take sides in their side. And it's like metal rubbing metal. It creates heat and friction between the people of God. And so what happens? Well, they show that they have no love for Jesus nor for his people. And they've been robbed of the truth. It sounds strange, isn't it, that Paul was this concerned back then in the first century. But it should be a concern because we saw what happened to the Ephesians church only a few decades later. But you see what Paul describes here. It is the complete opposite to what we have already looked at. What is expected of Christian leaders in 1 Timothy 3 who are meant to be self-controlled and temperate. Even in disagreements, godly men and women, of course not perfect, but godly men and women will always be able to speak with grace, with respect, with dignity, even disagree, but disagree well, which unfortunately for us Australians, it is really quite lacking amongst our leaders in government. They disagree very poorly. As a pastor, I've been to many meetings. In fact, a lot of my work is filled with meetings. And you can learn a lot about a person by how they disagree. Now, in saying this, I'm nowhere near perfect, and I have my flaws as well. But you can tell a lot about a person by how they disagree. There was this meeting I was at not that long ago. It's not in our church, so you don't need to worry and do not need to speculate. But in this meeting, one of the guys, he was screaming at the top of his head. He was angry. He was on fire. He was a saint to be seen or not see. But the chair of that meeting... He was so calm, gentle, kind, temperate. He was godly. You see, rejecting the words of Jesus is bound up with rejecting the ways of Jesus. It will be seen in the belief and in the life. The life will show it. But now notice how twisted their behavior has become. It is bound up with pursuing the wealth of the world. Their first love is no longer Jesus. It is money. The only reason they want to be a part of any church community is to make some money. It is shocking. It is so twisted. Look at verse 5, the second half. They think that godliness is a means to financial gain. It's become so twisted and distorted. But what makes it, in a sense, worse was that the churches, many of the early churches, didn't mind it. The more the teachers and the preachers charged for their teaching, the better deal they thought they were getting. That was Greek culture. The better you were at a public speaker, the more you could charge. And so you were worth it. And that was why when Paul preached for free, he was despised by the churches. 
in Corinthians, in, the, in Corinth, because they thought if you're any good, you charge a fee. But what we're seeing here in this verse is really the first century equivalent of the current day televangelists. If you've been on late night TV and you watch these type of channels, you see these televangelists and uh, you, you, I won't name names, but you can just read up on the lifestyle of some of these televangelists. It is unbelievable. Private jet planes, the wealth they have, they live like kings. It is so distorted. They see the church as a means of financial gain. During my time at um, Bible College, I had the opportunity to visit quite a number of churches Partly just to open up my eyes to get some experience. Partly was for an assignment as well. One of the church that will remain nameless that I visited, it was a service where they had a guest speaker from the States, from America. He preached a sermon, and after his sermon, the bag was passed around. Now, it wasn't the weekly offering that was taken for the work of the gospel in the church and the support of missionaries. It was called a love offering. What did that mean? It was a love offering to the speaker. So everything was, that was collected in that love offering was given straight to the speaker. That night, that guy probably earned a couple thousand dollars. It sounded so wrong. It looked so wrong. Pretty good gig being a pastor. But it looked so wrong. When it comes to finances, there must be transparency, integrity, pure motives. No one should be engaged in the church for money. It's why in our church, you probably would have heard this before, amongst our staff members, we've got this policy, because our church provides for us already, any other service we offer outside of the church, weddings, funerals, camp engagements, speaking engagements, we do not take a fee. We just don't take a fee. We don't need it. The church provides for us already. And if it's unavoidable, it goes to the church. It goes somewhere else. We don't pocket it. I mean, you think about it. Weddings, funerals, 300 bucks here, $500 there, $1,000 there. It is so easy. Just scratch the heart and greed can be there. It's so easy just to pocket it all. But I know my heart, and it's better to say no. And in sharing that, it's just to show you how easy I can slip into the same problem as well. And so godliness is not meant to be for financial gain, Paul says. Instead, what we see in verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Now have a look at that verse, verse 6. It's such a beautiful, wholesome verse. To be content is great gain. How do you know you've got great gain now? You're actually very content and thankful. And my contentment is despite my life's circumstances. Whether I'm sick, I can still be content. Whether I'm poor, I can still be content. It's like what Paul says in, in Philippians 4. I've learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. 
And so whether I have little or much, I can be content. Because my contentment is not bound up with stuff. Getting my hands on stuff, on possessions, on wealth. But my contentment is tied to Jesus Christ. He remains my saviour whether I have much or little. He remains my provider, he remains my protector, and he remains by my side. My contentment is bound up with him. And that is why those who choose to go into full-time gospel work of any form, a missionary, a gospel worker, a minister, a pastor, part of good training is always to learn contentment with little. It's, what, it's part of the confirmation and conviction of someone wanting to go into any form of ministry is to see whether they are willing to make that sacrifice financially. And so you've heard that announcement from Ollie. We're encouraging some in our church to undertake a two-year ministry apprenticeship with us, to be trained in ministry, to consider full-time ministry in the future. But it will mean making a sacrifice financially. Because those people we are asking will have to leave their full-time salary, full-time job, and it's perhaps quite a healthy salary, and to live on an apprentice salary where they have to raise a lot of the funds for two years. But what do you think that does to your faith if you have to make that transition from a salary that's probably up here to one then that it's down here? What do you think it does to your heart? Well, it causes you to learn contentment with little. More than that, it causes you to depend upon God. God will provide for my needs. He said, when we were at Bible college, I went from a full-time job to no income for four years. Now, in sharing this, it's just a personal testimony. Uh, not to big note myself at all, it's my own experience. We moved into state with one child, we came back with three. And so it was uh, a useful four years yeah, for many reasons. Our family grew. But it grew with no income apart from what the government supported and the government is very generous. We lived in a place in Parramatta, a small unit, two bedrooms, three kids, so two kids in one room and one with us in our bedroom. Our lifestyle was very different to what it is now. We had very little. We didn't go out much because that was too costly. Um, we had cheap, I, I had cheap haircuts. I, in fact, still have cheap haircuts, so that hasn't changed. But we were content with little. We actually did not need to, I mean, do what we get to do now. Now we have far more. I'm, I'm a minister, but we have far more. We are content, but we were content with little. And that's because the secret to contentment is that it's not bound up with stuff, with bank accounts, with shares, with possessions. It is bound with Jesus Christ. Because it's so easy, isn't it? This is for all of us to think, if only I get that next promotion, then I'll be content. If only if my salary gets to that level, then I'll be content. If only I get to experience that holiday, then I'll be content. If only, if only. 
No, no, you won't. You will not be content because it is to look for contentment in the wrong places. Now, of course, that is not to say we can't receive these good gifts from God with thankful hearts. Of course we are. But to find contentment in them is to look in the wrong places. You see, the stuff of this world, Paul goes on to say, is that it is transient. Look at verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. So obvious, isn't it? It's so obvious. We just want to live a life proving that God is wrong, but it's so obvious. In the book of Job, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. So what if I die with millions of dollars in my bank? You can pass it to your kids, but it may not be the wisest thing. I mean, even those billionaires like Bill Gates, he knows better. He knows not to pass all his billions of dollars to his children. He'll spoil them. You see, every funeral I've been to, every burial I've been to, as the coffin is lowered, as the coffin is pushed into the oven and is cremated, whether they lived a life of wealth or poverty, I say the same words. And what are they? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. In the coffin they may be surrounded by jewellery, by gold, by silver, but who cares? You see, wealth possessions, it is so transient. But verse 8, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And so this is a question for all of us to ask. What happens in your heart? What happens in my heart when I see pictures of my friends eating some fine dining cuisine at some up-class restaurant and they post all these pictures on Facebook and Instagram? What happens while I'm at home eating broccoli? Do, Do I feel less content, envious? Or what happens to my heart when I see my salary and I check out the salary of my colleagues or the different occupations? What happens to my heart? Or what happens to my heart when I come to church, I park in the church car park and and I see some really nice cars and here I am driving a Kia or a Toyota or a Volvo. You see, contentment is a matter of the heart. And to not be content is to covet, to want more and more and more. It's a bit like, it's like an itch. You scratch the itch, and what happens? It gets itchier. That's how greed works. You scratch it, it gets itchier, and you scratch it some more, it gets itchier and itchier. That's how greed works. It is a trap. Greed will never be satisfied. It can never offer contentment, and it leads to all sorts of evil. Look at verse 9. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. That's a snare. And into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. 
How many nations have been destroyed because of greedy rulers? There are many. How many corporations have been destroyed because of greedy directors? There are many. How many families have been destroyed because of greed in the family? There are many. The desire to, be, to get more and more and more in life, what happens at the end? There is still more to get. It is unsatiable. You just end up wanting more. And I wonder whether you've experienced or know that yourself. You've seen how your heart longed for something and you got it, it's never satisfied, but you just long for the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing. Or whether you've known someone who, who has fallen into the trap of greed. It's devastating when you see it happen. I know of someone who became an addicted gambler. It, of course, started very small, going to the casino on very rare occasions, the pokies, but of course the occurrences increased. And then it was maxing out the credit cards and then applying for more credit cards to pay that credit card, but then that was maxed out as well. And then the debt grew and grew and grew. And what comes with greed? Well, then there were lies and deception and cover-up hiding from his wife and children until the debt got too big that it could not be hidden. And when it was revealed, it was heartbreaking to the family and it was left to the wife and children to pay off the debt. That's just one example. And there are many more. Vicious fighting between husbands and wives because of money. Is it worth it? I've seen it. Siblings fighting over the estate of their parents, of their dead parent. Is it worth it? It happens. I've seen it. Friendships torn apart because of money. Is it worth it? I mean, just yesterday I spoke to someone and this lady said, money is just a thing. It's not worth it. You see, the love of money is destructive. The love of money is destructive. It is so seductive. It gives a false sense of security and it will destroy. Look at verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. You know that saying? Well, this is where it comes from. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Just like the proverb. Such is the fate of all who are greedy for money. It robs them of life. Life that is revolved around money, it will eat you up and it will destroy you. You'll lose your life doing so. And so the problem with that church in Ephesus, they were losing their first love. And for many, it was by loving money instead. Now I wonder how that looks like in our context. 
Because I certainly think the problem that was there in the first century is still a modern-day problem we see today. It, it was Martin Luther, the reformer, who said, there are three stages to a person's conversion. Their heart, their mind, and their wallet. Often the last area a Christian life, of a Christian life to be devoted to God is our money. Now, do you think that's true? Do you think your, your devotion to God is reflected in the way you use your money? Is your devotion to God consistent with your finances, financial management, financial giving? You see, if we don't want to be those who fall into this trap, if we don't want to be greedy people, how does that work? How can that happen? We can't stop being greedy by sheer willpower. It doesn't work that way. You can't just be stoic and say, I'm not going to be greedy. It doesn't work that way. You have to do the opposite. You have to be generous. To not be greedy means to be generous. But how do we be generous? Well, we learn from the generous God. We learn from our generous Savior. Our Savior who was rich, rich in the glory of heaven itself, but became poor like one of us, became a servant and died on the cross so that through his poverty we might become rich in Christ so that every spiritual blessing that is in him is ours as well so that we might have forgiveness of sins Adoption into the family of God and a home in the new creation. And when I come to understand that, my heart is changed. I don't want to be greedy. I want to be generous just like my Savior. I'm not going to love money because I love Jesus more. I do not want to lose my first love. And if that is true, if that is what Jesus has done, then I want to expend my life for him. It is all for him. A few months ago, I, I conducted a funeral, many of you would know, of one of our elderly members. She was one who lived her life storing treasures in heaven. I was told by her, her family, who went through her stuff at home, you know, have to sort out things after she passed away. And, and this family member said to me, she found nothing of value in her home. I mean, you come through my place and you go through my stuff, you'll find stuff of value. You'll find my coffee machine. That's of value. But she went through her house and there was nothing expensive at all. No expensive jewelry. They're all fake stuff. Nothing real. And I'm told largely it's because she was so generous. She just gave stuff away. Kept on giving stuff away. Her money she gave away to missionaries and gospel workers. She could have been very wealthy, but she gave it away. Now, why did she live such a life? Well, it's because she understood passages like this. I brought nothing into the world, so I'll leave this world with nothing. I'd rather store up treasures in heaven. And that she did. You see, when the time comes, when... Those of us who believe in Jesus, we spend our first minute in heaven. 
none of us will be thinking, I wished I should have saved more money and kept more to myself. None of us will be saying that. None of us will be saying, I wish I should have invested more. None of us will be saying, I wish I worked harder in my job. We won't be saying that. It only takes, in fact, not even a minute to realize that in heaven. Instead, we'll be saying, I wish I gave more away. I wish I gave more away. All the money in the world is nothing compared to even this one minute where I can gladden my eyes on the glorious face of my Savior. And so let me ask you, what are we like? I mean, the warnings here to the church in Ephesus, it is a warning to us as well. There will be people who will reject the words and ways of Jesus and pursue the wealth of the world. There will always be constant pressure to love something or someone above Jesus, to forsake our first love. But for us, let it be our prayer and our life that by the grace of God, we learn from them and we love Jesus first to our very final breath. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we reflect on what your son Jesus did for us, help us to love him first, to find fulfillment, satisfaction and contentment in him alone. And we pray, Lord, that these are not just words of our lips, but the convictions of our hearts and the lives we live. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and King. Amen.